Welcome to the Centuries of Sound radio podcast, the mid-monthly show where we discuss and give some context to these records. My lord and gentlemen, Centuries of Sound. If you enjoy these programs, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. For $5 or local equivalent per month, you can get full downloads of mixes and these radio podcasts a year earlier. Centuries of Sound is an independent podcast without any advertising, and it's only with the support of patrons that the show can survive. Find out more at patreon.com slash centuries of sound. Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to Centuries of Sound. I'm James. And I'm Sean. This is the show where we delve into the past to bring you a year of recorded sound using only original wax cylinder recordings. At least it is for this year, or two years in fact, because we're still in the early days of recorded sound and there's not really enough in one year to justify doing a whole show on it. Which years are we doing this time? The years 1896 to 1897. So what kind of year was 1896? Would you say? Well, for America, of course, they elect President McKinley, um, often forgotten now as the footnote in the career of the far more popular President Roosevelt. But he was a very, he was a transformative president realigning American politics. More on that later. Mm-hmm. It also saw one of the first speeding fines in the United Kingdom, publishing of Oscar Wilde, performance of Oscar Wilde's Salome, and the founding of the forerunner of Olympic Lyonnais FC. Well, in a, in a tiny, bare-walled room, a man sings into a huge metal horn the sound causes vibrations in the air which travel down the horn compressing into a smaller point causing a diaphragm to vibrate the diaphragm pushes a metal stylus which cuts a minuscule groove in a brown wax cylinder turned by a clockwork mechanism no electricity is involved the force cutting the groove is the sound wave itself as the cylinder turns the wax shavings have to constantly be blown away to avoid the device skipping the cylinder's made of brown wax, we say. It's actually a metallic soap. With time, it becomes extremely brittle and it can split or shatter if not handled with care. Even stored carefully, oxides or oils tend to migrate to the surface and this attracts a black mould which eats away at the wax, after which playback is impossible. So, to play the sound back, we reverse this operation. A lighter stylus moves through the groove, vibrating a diaphragm which resonates out the horn. It's a matter of cutting-edge precision engineering to get any sound out at all. So the reproduction of voices and instruments you'll hear today is still something of a miracle. And then, 120 years later, with all the wear and tear that means, we stick a needle into these artefacts, which seems downright insane. But still, those sounds are sitting there, and it's this race against time to get them out. Uh, Let's play one of the biggest hits of the decade. This is uh, George W. Johnson, who we've uh, encountered before. Do you remember about George W. Johnson? If you could remind me. He's uh, the biggest recording artist of the decade. He is a street entertainer, a black street entertainer that was uh, found on the streets of New York performing his two songs. This song does not have an offensive name, although some of the language within has some offensive racial stereotypes, I would say. The other song was whistling based and this one is laughing based. Um, So of the tens of thousands of recordings he made of this piece in the 1890s, this unfortunately seems to be the best preserved one we have. Johnson's street corner entertainments already seem outdated, but his laugh is still hearty and infectious even after so many performances. You've got to imagine this guy, he's been sitting in a recording studio recording this over and over again because every cylinder was a master copy at this time, <laughs> recording again and again and again all day, but he still sounds like he really means it when he laughs. 
Did that sound familiar at all? It has echoes of the Laughing Policeman, I think. It is indeed the same song. When I was a kid, I heard Laughing Policeman on the radio once or twice, I think. Mm. I never realised it was uh, the first big hit of recorded sound and not involving a policeman at all. <laughs> and it was American, uh, American song in the first place. Yeah, so there we go. If... How do we know this was the best-selling song? Because presumably there are no charts obviously at this point uh, catalogues and numbers mm. of recordings I, I think when every copy you're making is an original mm. then you can be more sure of those kind of things <laughs> the demand for it is huge i have uh copies of records made of it in russia 10, yeah. y- ten years later <laughs> if you can imagine such a thing how do you how do you copy a cylinder uh it, it was around this time was it a little later than this that they developed a way of uh making copies of cylinders mm. it was a quite a difficult technique but they they've managed to make duplicates uh at first they would sound much worse it was second or third hand duplicates which so basically we have worse. cheap knockoff cylinders of this song uh yeah yeah but a, a few years later you do bootlegs yeah yeah but you know i think he made a good career of it and he did sound genuinely jolly yes he did didn't he Good old George W. Johnson. So let's let's hear, as promised, a bit more about William McKinley, uh, an American president that I uh, only really know that he was assassinated. That's the big takeaway thing about him. But I think he was more important than that. Well, 
1896 presidential election is often seen as a realignment election. Uh, McKinley represents an idea of a strong central federal government which would protect American industry uh, with tariffs and the dollar linked to the gold, what was called the gold standard, um, which the United Kingdom was also using around about this time. And this realignment of voters, which brings together um, urban voters as a serious block for the first time, but some of the the Mideast American states as well, realigns American politics up until the election of uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s and his what is considered the start of the progressive era. He is an important figure, and some historians say that only he could have won this election against popular Democrat William Bryant, who I I don't know if we're hearing from later or not. Not this year. Not this year. Not this year, unfortunately. But we will be hearing from at some point, who was a very popular candidate with farmers. And this is the first time, really, that farmers have been defeated as a force in American politics. The party political system in America... Was, is not as it is now. No, absolutely not. The Republican Party, in many ways, is the more progressive party uh, at this time. We've got to remember the Republicans are the party of the North, the party of business, and, and actually they're the party that freed the slaves, and they're the party who wants to pro- progress, quote-unquote, society forwards. Uh, the Democrats at the time were the party of the South, the party of farmers, the party of people who lost the Civil War, and at this point have managed to segregate and disenfranchise almost every uh, african-american uh in mm. the south okay so let's hear let's hear william mckinley's voice this is this is what it sounded like from this point onwards we have the voices of american presidents my fellow citizens recent events have imposed upon the patriotic people of this country a responsibility and a duty greater than that of any since the civil war then it was a struggle to preserve the government of the united states now it is a struggle to preserve the financial honor of the government. It was a contest to save the Union. Now it is a contest to save spotless its credit. Then section was arrayed against section. Now men of all sections can unite and will unite to rebuke the repudiation of our obligations and the debasement of our current. In this contest, patriotism is the most party and national honour is dearer than any party name. President William McKinley there talking to the Republican conference on his uh, monetary policy. Mm. Uh, kind of in line with what you were saying there. So McKinley is the Republican Party's expert on tariffs or the idea that the government should artificially raise the prices of foreign goods. A, to stimulate the domestic economy by making American products artificially mm. cheaper, but also the idea that you can fund a lot of American government from taxing um, goods. This becomes a fi- this becomes quite popular in England around this time with uh, Joseph Chamberlain and the tariff, mm. um, the, the imperial tariff system. Um, and so this idea, effectively, it is quite an inward-looking system, but the idea is that if you protect American jobs more American money stays in America, the whole economy benefits, everyone is raised up. Well, it's um, a very relevant yeah. right now, isn't it? Yes, Similar well, things being tried. Yes, well, Trump is very much in favour of tariffs mm. uh, at this point, and I, I suspect we're heading that way under under the Conservative Party, I think, post-Brexit, but we'll we'll see. Where there is a, where there are very serious topics, of course, there's going to be comedy as well. Absolutely. This is a, a man called George Graham. He's not one of the other famous George Grahams. And uh, I think this sounds like a direct parody 
of uh, the president's speech. Money is the cause of all the misery in this world, and yet every man you meet is ready and willing to borrow trouble. Now the financial situation of this country at the present time is something frightful. We don't know whether we'll have the gold standard or the silver standard. We don't know whether a dollar will be worth 80 cents, 70 cents, or 60 cents. The way I get rid of that difficulty is that every dollar I get hold of, I spend. I take no chances. The government can bust tomorrow, and it don't owe me a cent. Now the Democratic Party says that the Republican Party are all thieves, and the Republican Party says the Democratic Party are all thieves. Well, they know each other, so there's no chance for an argument there. Now, if you want to end this contention and strife, make me president of this United States, and I'll do it cheaper than the man that's in there. To elucidate further, what he's talking about, the gold standard versus the silver standard, is the idea that you hitch uh, the dollar or any kind of money to a certain set value of gold. So the idea is you could exchange, say for argument's sake, one dollar for one ounce of gold, for example. Mm. The Republican Party argue for gold, the gold standard, lashing uh, the dollar to the gold, which makes the dollar more expensive. Whereas the Democrat Party want to have a, what's called a silver standard, which makes the dollar cheaper, so there's more dollars. Um, dollars cheaper, farmers can buy more, etc., etc., etc. In the age of the, the rolling back of slavery mm. and uh, America growing as an imperial power in the world, mm. build it to the, fir- the First World War, mm. it does seem like a silly thing to have huge arguments about when the, I guess... We could also draw a parallel mm. <laughs> to modern days. Perhaps we get too concerned about things which in the future we will wonder why that was the big issue. What, what else is going on in 1896? So how about in the world of literature? What kind of things do we have going on there? Oh Well, we have Shropshire Lad by Alfred Edward Hoosman. Uh, a. E. Hausman. Hausman, thank you very much. Who doesn't come from Shropshire. No. That's my fact uh, about A. E. Hausman. Um, Incredibly popular, uh, arguably more popular in the early 20th century, really. Um, but it was very popular among young readers. Uh, and indeed, was one of the first sets of poems to be set to music. So I'm reliably informed. Right. We have The Island of Dr. Moreau. Moreau? Okay. Another one of H.G. Wells. Yes, H.G. Uh, Wells. Um, it's kind of Lord of the Flies-esque in a certain sense. It sets, follows the narration of Edward Pendrick, a shipwrecked man rescued by a passing boat who was left in the Highland home of Dr. Moreau, a mad scientist who creates human-like hybrids from animals via vivisection. It's, mm. it's, um, it's pretty gruesome. I mean, yeah. of, of his science fiction classics it maybe mm. is the, the most gruesome some of the animals there do we have any other books we have there? the seagull which is a play written right. in 1895 okay. uh but first produced in 1896 by russian dramatist anton chekhov yeah. uh it dramatizes the romantic and artistic conflicts between four characters chekhov does write a good play or he did for those uh, uh five or yeah. six years when he was at the top of his game before he died so it's kind of a golden age for literature in some ways. Lots mm. of famous works being produced. Yeah. As far as music goes, uh, well, we could talk about the world of classical music, but I think as far as recorded music goes, we're talking about pop music, really. Um, and ragtime is hopefully starting to come in. Mm. Um, but not really. There's a precursor <laughs> to ragtime, which is we can call cakewalk. And uh, the idea of cakewalk is that slaves or plantation workers, they'd probably be at this point, they parade up and down in suits making fun of their uh, white people, Mm. uh, whatever role they have at this point, 
and uh, the they do funny dances, I think John Cleese kind of thing. Mm. And the the one who does the funniest dance, uh, mocking kind of walk, gets a cake. They win a cake at the end. That's the idea of the cake walk, and it's supposed to go with early ragtime music. Um, to what extent is not really that clear. These words ragtime, cakewalk, and a few other terms are kind of they're all kind of jumbled up and mixed in and it's kinda yeah. hard to define. This is the Columbia Orchestra who were very much not a ragtime organization. This is them doing uh, something called the Virginia Skidaddle. I feel like it's basically a minstrel show piece rather than anything else. Um it's mediated through this kind of white viewpoint. But you can see maybe there's something underneath it um i wish they didn't need to add the minstrel style imitations of black speech through it and uh oh dear i mean naming naming it the virginia skedaddle the virginia minstrels are the most famous minstrel troupe so they're they are also white so it's a bit a bit annoying but this is this is what we have as far as cakewalk goes in this year <laughs> a problematic recording you were saying there. yes some language and some caricatures which i think are still quite distasteful to a modern audience if i put it like it is it is massively offensive mm. and terrible i mean what you should remember with everything every recording at this time really is the society of the time was oh, yeah. racist beyond yes. anything we can picture it was it's so ingrained into every every aspect of society yeah that it's very hard to avoid and you have new music coming in and it's associated with black people this is unfortunately what happens and i really wish we could get away from it and this is one of the reasons why people don't listen to music from this era is that they can't escape the terrible racism of it and i think we can look at it as historians yes. and say this is a- an attempt a a bad attempt <laughs> to 
to do it but at the same time you can hear the musicianship there they were really mm. trying to introduce these new elements into their music and you know it's it's unfortunate that they didn't just go and record the real musicians who were doing this but you know everything was recorded by this small group of musicians in new york so was this was this an entirely white band oh or? i'm sure yeah i'm sure we do have some recordings of black performers mm. and the, you know, like i said george w johnson was the biggest recording artist of the of the decade yeah. and, and was a black man um let's have some comedy shall we oh please uh hilarious comedy uh this is from a mr cal stewart we'll be hearing more from cal stewart through the years he's i think made more cylinders and uh early discs than anyone else mm. um massively prolific uh pre-world war one recording artist and uh, he was a friend of Mark Twain, and uh-huh. uh, Mark Twain would come and introduce him. He was, uh, yeah, he was he was from the south of the USA, well, uh, Virginia, but he pretended to be from uh, New England, from a, a community called Pumpkin Center. He had already been taking these monologues around the country for around a decade, mm. and uh, Edison Records got him to record some of them. And that was him in a career for the next 20 years. We'll mm. hear many more from him, for better or for worse. This is his uh, trip to Coney Island. Uncle Joy Sweater's best trip to Coney Island, made by Mr. Kyle Stewart, Edison Record. That's <laughs> the other day. I got on one of these cars, what goes across the Brooklyn Bridge, and I started out for Coney Island. Well, sitting alongside of me in the car was an old lady, and... She seemed to be a little bit fidgety about something or other, and finally she turned around to me and she said, Mr. Do these cars stop when we get on the other side of the bridge? I said, well, now they don't. You'll get the awfulest bump you ever got in your life. Well, we got on the other side, and I got on one of them trolley cars, what goes down to Pony Island. I hand the car feller a dollar, and he took and put it in his pocket just the same as if it belonged to him, and I guess it did. We got putting it down there, and I says, Mister, don't I get any change? He says, did you see that sign on the end of the car? I said, no, sir. Well, he says, you better go out and look at it. Well, I went out and looked at it, and that settled it. It said, this car goes to Coney Island without change. <laughs> I guess it did, I'll bet. Don't go into my gut anyway. We got down there, and I must say... Of all the pandemonium and hubbub I ever heard in my life, Coney Island beats it all. I found one place, what they call the Middle Way Please Zumps, and then I found another place, what they call the Streets of Carroll. Well, they had a lot of shows going on along there, and I went into one of them and sat down, and I guess if they hadn't shut up the store, I'd have been sitting there yet. <laughs> I put near busted my buddies laughing. They had a lot of girls dancing some kind of a dance. I don't know what they called it, but the music went something like this. La 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 I went home more I thought about it, I made up my mind I'd learn that dance. Well I went out from the cornfield where none of the neighbors could see me and I'll be doggone if I didn't knock down about four acres of corn, but I never got that dance right. <laughs> so some laughs there from Cal Stewart. Did you find that as hilarious as I did? Which is not, not so hilarious. <laughs> um, 
maybe his humour is a taste to be acquired, but I did enjoy the song at the end. I I think we've heard that on the show. Yeah, the famous uh, exotic song mm. at the time, which, uh, yeah, it's, it's not really the exotic song, as <laughs> we discussed previously. Excellent. Yeah, um, so we haven't really covered high art. Let's, uh, let's hear something a bit more uh, dignified perhaps a couple of pieces um this is a, a performance from one of america's greatest uh, cornet players uh the cornet was the foremost brass instrument of its day and uh, it would be right up until the jazz era and uh this is he's called uh, william paris chambers and it's called the seraph some better music there i would say yes yeah and uh, let, let's have some more music that sounds acceptable <laughs> at the same time of this uh, burgeoning recording industry with a small group of musicians in america we have another small group who happen to be very good musicians recording in russia uh this is uh joseph hoffman and uh it's from a, a Julius Block, so and uh, Julius Block, as mentioned on previous episodes, was uh, a, a hobbyist in Russia who was friends with all the great composers and musicians in Russian uh, classical music at that time. Mm. So uh, here he is, is a piano piece with from uh, Mr. Joseph Hoffman. Thank you. 
So that's us done for 1896. Let's move on to 1897. What kind of things are going on in the world? Well, 1897 sees the inauguration of William McKinley in March. You can remember until, mm-hmm. I can't remember, some point in the mid-20th century, American presidents inaugurated in March. Um, so that for, if you're a president and you you know, you you lose the election in November, you've then got f- four months of, you're in power, but not you know, in office, but not in power, effectively. Queen Victoria celebrates her golden... Diamond Diamonds, Jubilee? diamonds, there we are. Diamond, Diamond Jubilee. Jubilee. Uh, she becomes the last British monarch to do so until Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Um, France allows women to study at the Ecole de Beaux Arts. Um, Good. Yeah. Freedom of religion proclaimed in Madagascar, which is my perhaps my favourite fact of this year. Um, okay. Just because I've got images of the film. Um, right, of some lemurs. Yeah, declaring freedom of religion. Uh, and the first Zionist Congress convenes in Basel, Switzerland. Okay. And the first international convenes in England, I believe. Oh, so you know, uh, a good year for everyone involved, really. Political, yes. uh, political movements, which are going to be very important in the twentieth century, kind of kicking off in this yes. year. So, uh, yeah, we are hurtling towards, towards the twentieth century. Absolutely. As far as recorded music goes, again, there's not a huge amount of uh, progress. We are starting to see uh, discs. That is mm. a, a bit of a different thing. The first disc recordings are kind of from this year that are commercially available. Um, elsewhere, though, the pattern's all too familiar. Experiments are conducted into a new medium. Engineers work on it to make a viable product. Entrepreneurs invest and roll up mass production. The great and the good attempt to claim it for high culture. Then the rabble inevitably take over. Aww. This doesn't mean that someone's gone down to New Orleans to record Buddy Bolden, unfortunately. It more means that the ability to record your own cylinders means that we're getting people making the audio equivalent of B-movies Excellent. or stag films, we could even <laughs> say. Um, there's a CD called Actionable Offences, Indecent Phonograph Recordings from the 1890s, which Archeophone Records put out about a decade ago. And... Uh, most of these are unofficial recordings without labels, so the dates are kind of guessworks at best. So, you know, it's a kind of a messy compromise to assume they're from 1897, but here we are anyway. And uh, quite a lot of them are performed by a Mr. Russell Hunting, a very popular recording artist of the time, uh, who did uh, Casey. Uh, Casey was one of his characters. Mm. It's a, a, an Irishman. Uh, that's the kind of humour that they appreciated in the late 1890s, uh, ethnic humour. Um, Brilliant. But uh, yeah, he's a very popular recording artist and uh, he founded Phonoscope, it's the first independent magazine for, for the recording industry. And he set up one of the first phonograph shops in New York. 
and uh, you could come into his phonograph shop and uh, if you asked him nicely, he would reproduce bawdy monologues or dialogues from a book called The Stag Party, which was also illegal. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the, lo- the local police uh, sent in an undercover officer to request him to record something along these lines. And he did. And he was arrested and he went to jail for six months. For his art. For not <laughs> his art. Um, you can judge for yourself whether this is a work of art or not. I'm not sure it's suitable to be described as such. But here we go anyway. And I put me hand on it and it, uh, after working about an hour I get me trousers down and I get me big boogie bow out and I get about to have a little game of things to weenie waste with the little girl. When I see me wife coming down the walk to the shed. She just come back from the meeting to get her needle or some thread or something. There I was with me pants down, the girl, she simply dropped a dress and uh, she run away out of the place. And me with me pants down and me dollier, darling there. My wife comes in and says, she, Jenny, what are you doing here? I says, darling, I'm shitting. That was quite something. 1890s, uh, quite a bit more... Uh, wild wilder than you imagine it's the naughty 90s mm. people do call it the naughty 90s so substantially naughtier than you might have been led to believe it's a good say it's kind of the equivalent of filming your mate doing something stupid on your phone isn't it really it's that kind of yeah uh, it's, it's, it's not a great work of literature let's talk about what is a great work of literature at this time uh, <laughs> what kind of literature do we have for right, this year right so we have got a rich this year, perhaps most famously, Dracula is published this year oh, by great. Irish author Bram Stoker. I'm sure you're all aware of who Dracula is. Um, yeah, yeah. But it tells the story of Dracula's attempt to move from Transylvania to England so that he may find new blood and spread his, his unholy curse in this battle between Dracula and a small group of people led by Professor Abraham von Helsing. It's a, it's a good book. I do mm. like it. I, I read it when I was... Um... I don't know, 15, 16 for the first time. Yeah. And uh, my impression of it when I first read it uh, was that the beginning part was uh, amazing. Uh, one of the best bits of writing I've, I've, I'd ever read. Mm. Then the, uh, let's say, the second half, not so good. Um, once, once they're out of Dracula's castle into London, mm. it is, the characters are not there. As one of the characters is Quincy, whose personality is like this. He's an American. That's about it. Uh, <laughs> there's uh, the... Who else is there? Lucy, mm. who is the most pathetic... I don't, I don't know what his opinion of women was, but the the evil vampire women at the start are much more interesting than the <laughs> supposedly nice women that come along later who are... yeah. Completely useless. <laughs> but all the men are wildly in love with them for no reason I can tell at all. Um, and a lot of the book consists of uh, the, these men writing letters about how wonderful 
the other men in the party are and how much they respect them. That is a good quarter of the book. Is, I is mean, bad. I'm all for intermale bonding. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. Dull. That's all. That part. But I still, I still really like it. I just mm. think it needs editing. That's all. Have you have you read Dracula before? Uh, I read a bit of it. I was I was about the same age, and I got a bit bored. I think I I'd get bored after the after it goes back to England. That's fair enough. Mm. It does get a bit tedious there. It's good again at the end. It do, yeah. does get back in the groove again at the end. But uh, I I do really like it. But I think it should be cut down. I like to read a, a cut Chris- version. Christopher Lee in the film version, I think, is. Unparalleled. Oh, there have been many good film versions mm. of Dracula. My, I, I don't know that the one in the um, no mm. early nineteen thirties with Bela Lugosi, the mm. most famous one. I always think of it as it's almost a silent film. It's it's shot like a silent film, um, which again it's it's good at the beginning, but as soon as they get out get out into London, it it, it stops working. <laughs> I mean, the best one probably is Nosferatu, um, mm. which was an unofficial version. Um, the Christopher Lee one takes some beating, although there is a perverse joy in the recent one. Uh, what was that called? Vlad? Uh, Drac- um, oh, there's a one about the, the, the historical character mm, of Vlad Dracula. Who, who, who is infected by some demon played by Charles Dance. Right, okay. Um, I have not seen that. Is that worth watching? It depends what you want out of a film, I think. If you want pure action and some light-hearted enjoyment that you can switch off to, go all for it. You know, if, if you want a deep reflection on the nature of man's inner workings. Right. My uh, my favourite yeah. version, perhaps, uh, uh, Love at First Bite. Have you seen Love at First Bite? No, that sounds excellent. Oh, God, Love at First Bite. Uh, so, apart from Dracula, what else do we have uh, in terms of uh, writings in that year? We have... Famous in America, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> okay, great. Um, it's one. It's the most reprinted yeah. newspaper column of all time, I believe. It's 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 full of banal truths. I think attempting to be a deep philosophical reflection upon how Santa Claus is effectively the good in all of us, and how we should all love and respect each other a bit more. Um, you know, the right. wishy-washy stuff. Of- <laughs> okay, I, I, it's it is massively popular. Mm. It's been reprinted more that more times than anything else. Uh, any other events in the in the year that are interesting? Uh, so we have uh, Oscar Wilde is released from prison this year. He goes into exile. Okay. Oh, uh, you know we were talking about great uh, literature just a little bit earlier with that fantastic ditty. He's written De Profundis and he's yes. written uh, the Ballad of Reading Jail while yeah. he's been in there. So. Mm. We we do have things starting to move along in terms of music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got trombone player Arthur Pryor, who's uh, going to feature in the next next few episodes. Um, by 1895, he'd been promoted as the assistant conductor of Sousa's band. Oh, um, and uh, yeah, as Sousa would have nothing to do with recording studios, that was his domain. And uh, they went on a tour of Europe, and Pryor had put himself forward as a soloist producing not only elaborate displays of lightning-fast trombone playing, but also incorporating the kinds of slides and smears that would later be a hallmark of early jazz. So he's starting to learn uh, this ragtime music's kind of starting to come Mm. through. Um, And that went against everything expected as the regimented military music you might expect from Sousa's band. And uh, this combination of the peacock-like display of talent and occasional plunges into joyous self-expression was called a Yankee trick by astonished European audiences. <laughs> um, the link to the underexposed world of black music is unclear, but the connection is, is surely no coincidence. Mm. Uh, let's hear Sousa's band with a, 
I, I, this is labelled as Sousa's band, but it's a very prominent trombone piece from Martha Pryor, and uh, it's really his piece. Uh, it's uh, called Blue Bells of Scotland. You'd think it would be some kind of bagpipe piece, but it's not. kind of sounds like a leap forward to me mm. um so uh, although we, we've already heard him quite a few times arthur Pryor, but he's been uh just one of the other people playing there but suddenly we've got him like doing this peacocking solo stuff and i think it's uh yeah it's a breath of fresh air compared to all the kind of uh staid military kind of music that they've been making before mm. it's hard to believe that's Sousa's band in fact yeah i mean I don't, is Sousa still part of Sousa's band at this point uh, he is, but like I say, he refused to join in with recordings. Mm. So as far as the recorded versions are going, he wasn't. Another great soloist who appeared at this time is uh, Vassel Osman. Mm. You know, trailblazing artists, they're usually a bit better remembered than he is. He was the first musician to make a ragtime record. He was the king of the banjo. He's one of the biggest names of the Edwardian era. Vess was born in Hudson, New York in 1868. He spent the entirety of his adult life as a professional musician, recording mm. for 25 years and touring America and further afield for more than 30. 
and he recorded right up until 1917 and continued to to uh, tour with his son Vessel Osmond Jr. <laughs> until he died from an uh, on-stage heart attack in 1923 at the age of just 55. Um, but that was a normal kind of lifespan at that, t- at that mm. time. Uh, let's hear Vessel Osmond showing off his banjo skills. This is a famous song, uh, Old Folks at Home, also known as Swanee River. <laughs> So again, some virtuoso musicianship there from Vessel mm. Osman playing uh, Old Folks at Home, also known as Swanee River. Um, I think yeah, uh, with with these kind of guys, you can see where the future lies. And uh, within a couple of years, we'll be mainly hearing stuff that sounds like it's of this kind of new era mm. instead of uh, Victorian music, you know. And let's, let's just have a little bit more from Vessel Osman. This is uh, him playing back up to uh, Len Spencer, Len Spencer's big recording artist this time. Mm. And uh, this is just, it's, it's the big hit of the year. And uh, it's an even bigger hit the following year, 1898, where it's kind of the theme tune for Roosevelt's Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War. Uh, but the recordings of it are from uh, the year before. <laughs> so uh, mm. it's, uh, it's called uh, Hot Time in the Old Town. And uh, it's a very famous song in its time. I'm not sure if it survived right up until now but it's mm. a, one of the one of the uh, famous pre world war 1 tunes that everyone would be able to perform Sing, there'll be a hot side in your town tonight. 
Big hit of the year there, Hot Time in the Old Town. Have you heard that before? I have not. It's one of those standards that was uh, around for a long, long time. Um, I think possibly because it doesn't have any racist language in it or in the title, which helps. Yes, (laughs) makes it not not unique, but unusual in Mm. this era, unfortunately. I think one more thing of interest today, perhaps. This is a recording by Cousins and DeMoss. Cousins and DeMoss, it, it's kind of a, represent a bit of a mystery. Mm. They give us this glimpse into the world of black vaudeville in the late 1890s, uh, or kind of appear to. We're mm. not really sure who they are. There's no first names on the label, there's no yeah. catalogue listing, and there's no advertisement, but it, it, it's, it's almost certain that they were uh, Sam Cousins and Ed DeMoss, because there's uh, two experienced black entertainers who were active on the vaudeville minstrel stage at the turn of the century. Um, but it's a, a mystery as far as their whole life story is concerned and uh, the, where this comes from. But it does give us a, a rare glimpse into the world of uh, the music that black people were making at this time that wasn't getting recorded. I'm a long time, and I'm a 
been listening to centuries of sound i've been james and i've been sean so sean what have you made of the music of uh, 1896 and 1897 well i think we've had some uh, stirrings of modernity not modernity of the turn of the 20th century we're moving towards ragtime pre 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 modernity or something like that but we found out the naughty 90s really were naughty <laughs> we did they were quite naughty indeed uh Parts of them, at least. The, the naughty parts, in fact. Yeah. As well as being a radio show, Centuries of Sound is also a website. You can come and uh, have a look at what we've got at centuriesofsound.com. Please do come along and have a look. We've got mixes of every year up until 1910 right now. And uh, we also have 2016 and 2017 i make uh, mixes for those years that's how this all started out we're on uh, twitter and instagram and facebook as well so you can uh, like us on there if you feel like it uh let's finish off today with uh, one of the f- most famous songs from this year um stars and stripes forever what can you tell us about stars and stripes forever sure so stars and stripes forever the national march of the united states as of 1987 right not for quite a while after this, then. No, not for quite a while after this. Uh, John Philip Sousa uh, wrote that he composed the song on Christmas Day, 1896, after hearing of the death of David Blakely, the manager of the Sousa band. Uh, historically in the United States, it's known as the Disaster March. So, right. so see, what that means is if there is some form of emergency, uh, the band needs to signal to... Uh, staff at the venue to start clearing the audience off in a calm manner. They will play. They will play this song, uh, so the audience are unaware that something is going on, but that they can start shepherding them out, okay. and they will not play this under any other circumstances. So, is that what's going on here? Are we? Are we? Evacuate? Signaling people to are evacuate. Sig- I mean, if you would like to evacuate your uh, home or car at this point, uh, don't do that. That would be a mistake, probably. Yes. So here it is, Stars and Stripes Forever, performed by the original artist, Sousa's Band.
If you enjoy these programs, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. For $5 or local equivalent per month, you can get full downloads of mixes and these radio podcasts a year earlier. Centuries of Sound is an independent podcast without any advertising, and it's only with the support of patrons that the show can survive. Find out more at patreon.com slash centuriesofsound.